winding up our series on this book, Didn't See It Coming. And this is a book by a Canadian pastor, not an American pastor, a Canadian pastor, yes, who pastors at Connexus Church in Barrie, Ontario. He is a former lawyer, actually, who became a pastor a couple of decades ago and pastors a, a fantastic church over there, about 1,500 people, and a lot of unchurched people love to attend there. And he wrote this book. Uh, he's very popular in leadership circles, has a huge following online. And uh, I saw the book, and I thought it was amazing content, uh, seven challenges that no one expects but everyone faces. And look at that list. I mean, and we're at the bottom of it now. You know, cynicism, compromise, disconnection, irrelevance, pride, burnout. And today we're doing emptiness. Oh, wonderful, positive subjects, right? I mean, wow, this is great. You know, wow, what are we talking about these things for? Well, the reason is because everybody lives through those things. In one way or another, everybody faces those things. And the problem with all these areas is that we don't really see them coming. And they come into our lives, and we see the fallout at the end. And we see the, you know, at the end of the chain of burnout, at the end of the chain of cynicism and compromise, there's really something that now has to be fixed. And wow, something really bad happened. But it was the result of, it started with compromise. It started with cynicism. It started with pride. And so today we're going to talk about emptiness. Now, I just need to, to, to tell you as we conclude this series today, and you can, you can watch it on Facebook or you can listen to it on our website or through iTunes, whatever you want. All the things, of all the things that you learned today, of all the things that you've learned over the last six, seven weeks, of all of those things, all right, if at the end of the day, there's one thing and one thing alone that you need to learn, one and one alone, if you forget about all the rest, and here it is in the words of Jesus, you must be born again. Say, what do you mean? You must be born again. All of these techniques that you learn how to deal with cynicism and compromise and disconnection and irrelevance and pride and burnout and emptiness, those are all great. I mean, it's all wonderful stuff, and you learn all these tips and all these things. But if you don't have Jesus, then all of that is just technique. If you don't have a relationship with God, if you, I'll say it in the old language, if you are not saved, if you are not born again, if you do not know Christ, all of that is a bunch of technique. And really all it is is just like religion. It's just trying to do things and not do things in order to make yourself a better person, in order to try and improve your life. If you don't have Jesus at the end of the day, all you've got is smoke and mirrors. So I want to try and persuade you today, and I want to convince you of that simple truth that Jesus talked about, you must be born again. So you may find it a little old style today, but I make no excuses for it because all of the rest of this stuff is all kind of, you know, a list without Christ. So there's a conversation that Jesus had. This is a 2,000-year-old conversation that we find in the Gospel of John. 
And it's a marvelous interaction. It's the only time um, that Jesus, uh, uh, it's the only time recorded that he talks with this guy. So you don't see it in Mark or Luke or Matthew. You only see it in John's gospel. And it's a fascinating conversation between a Pharisee. Uh, his name is Nicodemus. You can just remember his name is Nick. Um, and that'll make it easier for you. And Jesus. And uh, a Pharisee was um, an ultra religious, elite, holy person of the day. The Pharisees knew the what we call the Old Testament like the back of their hand. They could quote it. They could teach it. The word means to be separate. So they prided themselves on living holy lives. You know, they were the example, they were the elite, they were the Pharisees. And he was a Pharisee, and he was also a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Uh, so there's, think of a kind of a religious lawyer, almost like a member of the Senate or the House of Representatives in the United States. Just a little joke for those of you who've been keeping up with the news. Did you know the House of Representatives went blue? Yes, and the Senate stayed red. How many of you are happy about that? You don't want to admit it. How many of you are sad about that? Yeah, you don't want to admit that either. Anyway, back then there was no separation between church and state, okay? They were squashed all together. So he was like one of the top guys in that whole system. So he had wealth, he had power, he had knowledge, he had prestige, he had respect. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, the same council that put Jesus on trial. He comes to Jesus at night, interesting, and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, remember that mention of God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing unless God were, not, were, were with him. So we know you've, you're a teacher, we know you've come from God, we know no one could do what you do unless God were with him. And here's Jesus's reply. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus, in characteristic fashion, does not address the question directly. He comes in at a different angle, right? So, so the, maybe Nicodemus doesn't want to be seen. Maybe he's coming to Jesus at night because he's got questions about Jesus. He sees him perform these miraculous things. He saw him turn water into wine at a wedding. He hears the stories. He sees how he how he teaches, he hears what he says, and he's a Pharisee, he's a Sanhedrin guy, so he knows and believes the kingdom of God is coming. The Messiah is supposed to come, and maybe he's wondering if Jesus is him, is this Messiah character from the Old Testament, or maybe he wonders if Jesus is going to proclaim himself to be the Messiah, or maybe Jesus thinks he's going to bring in the kingdom of God. But you see two mentions of God in his question. And Jesus' answer, no one. So including you, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus replies. He gives an answer to the question. It maybe have a hint of sarcasm in it. So he says, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Gross. Can you imagine what that would look like? 
But I mean, surely Nicodemus knows that this is, he, he, he must be playing with language here and doing a little bit of tongue in cheek with Jesus. I mean, he can't, he can't be thinking, go back into your mother's womb and be born. And here's Jesus' answer. Very truly, I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God. So first he says, no one can see it. Then he says, no one can enter it unless they are born of water and the spirit. The word for spirit in the, in the language that he's using there, the language of, that it's written down is wind. So you can almost translate it born of water and the wind, but in context, it should be spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must must there's a compulsion there's an obligation you must be born again the wind again using that same word the wind blows wherever it pleases you hear it sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going so it is with everyone born of the spirit i want to try and persuade you that nothing in this life is going to satisfy you except what jesus is talking about here the experience of being born again, the experience of salvation and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the only answer for your life. It is the meaning of your life and everything else is going to leave you empty. The subject of today's discussion. By the way, we baptized six people last night in water. Uh, I think they're all here. Anyway, the four out of the six are under 17 and a couple of adults, and they are examples of this. They are people who made a decision, and they're, they're showing that by being baptized in water. They are people who have experienced this whole thing. But I want to try and persuade you, because in North America, we seem to be uh, in need of persuasion. When we speak of the subject of emptiness, we have a wonderful example in the Bible. Um, it uh, it's predates this discussion uh, that Jesus had with Nicodemus uh, by quite some time, almost a thousand years, and it's a book. Uh, it's the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Any of you ever read this book, Ecclesiastes? Yeah, really strange book, huh? kind of a hopeless book. Uh, the Beatles have a, have a song, right? Uh, there's a season, turn, 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 right? It did everything, turn, turn, turn. That's out of Ecclesiastes, a very famous book because it's very negative. Uh, and people turn to it, I suppose, when they're feeling negative. But it's written uh, most probably by Solomon. Solomon succeeded King David. Solomon built the first temple. Solomon was the richest, wisest, most pres prestigious person, most powerful person. He was... Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, um, uh, all the philanthropists, everything, everything you could imagine rolled into one. He was the man of his day. And at the end of his life, he writes this book, Ecclesiastes, which is a kind of a Greek word in an effort to translate a Hebrew word that means leader of the assembly. And listen to what he says uh, in the opening line of his book. Again, the richest, wisest, most powerful, most prestigious man who, who lived at the time. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, 
meaningless, 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 says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And this is how he starts his book. So considering who wrote the book, it makes for really an interesting introduction. You would think that a guy who had it all, who experienced it all, would not write this way toward the end of his life, but this is kind of his conclusion of the matter after he, after he has lived and experienced all of it. And he goes through different things that he's lived and experienced, and he tries to build the case of why these things have left him empty. So first example, knowledge. Um, and here in the Western world and here in North America, Say, yes, knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge, this will make me happy, this will fill my life, this will be the center of my, my life and my world, I want to be the smartest, you know, person in the, in the, in the, in the, in the conversation, you know, intelligence, knowledge, uh, being an intellectual, this is, this is what I need to pursue, this is going to satisfy my life. And knowledge, apparently, to Solomon, it left him hmm, empty. So he talks in verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Pretty good. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Uh, verse 16, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom uh, more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge and then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. With more knowledge, more grief. How many of you know the more you know, sometimes the more depressed you're going to get? You know, God knows everything. I'm surprised God not, is not depressed all the time. Because the more you know and the more you observe the human condition in particular, the, the more sad it gets. Like, have you ever read the Old Testament in entirely, entirety, just the Old Testament? It's a major depressing book. It's story after story after story of human failure. Violence, uh, family dysfunction, like with a capital D, Sin after sin after sin, broken record after broken record. I mean, it's, it's kind of depressing when you read it. And the more you, you survey life and the more knowledge you have, it's likely going to be that the more you're going to be, wow, maybe Solomon's right. The more I know, I don't know that this is so satisfying to have all of this knowledge. But in the West, we think that it is. Uh, not according to Solomon. Remember Solomon, the guy with the, with the two mothers? Do you remember that story? In the Old Testament, these two mothers come to Solomon. He's, uh, he's kind of the chief in charge, and he's the judge, and he's the one who decides on these cases. And these two mothers come, and they, they're fighting over a baby. Do you remember the story? And this one says, this is my baby. And the other one said, no, it's my baby. And what does Solomon say? Oh, well, well let's just cut the baby in half. 
There you go. You can share. So he brings his servant over. He says, okay, raise the. And as soon as he's about to bring it down, okay, okay, okay. It's her baby. It's her baby. It's her baby. So this guy, he had, he had plenty of experience. He knew plenty of things. I mean, the builder of the first temple, all this knowledge led him to grief, he says. Interesting. How about, how about pleasure? So Solomon, if you know about his life, uh, this is a man who had no shortage of, uh, of pleasure, at least in, in this life. So uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, uh, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But I also prove that that's meaningless. Laughter, I said, it's madness. What does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. And he says, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. I denied myself nothing, verse 10. I refused my heart no pleasure. This conclusion, it's meaningless. Do you know that Solomon had an interesting um, issue with the ladies? Do you know that? So what is it, 500 wives and 300 concubines or, you know, these very large numbers of women in his life, large, large numbers. And, you know, I venture to say he wasn't playing checkers with those ladies, okay? This is a guy who denied himself no, no pleasure in this life. Like, he, he, he didn't deny himself any of that. He indulges, he seems to say in Ecclesiastes, and that problem that he had with the ladies actually led into big problems for his nation, right? That's why the nation of Israel was split. That's why there was a civil war in Israel. Ultimately, it had to do with him and marrying all these women from all these different religious views, and he brings all those views into his nation, and it causes catastrophe, causes problems. But what does he say? He says, all this pleasure, it left me empty at the end. Um, here's the problem with pleasure. You, you want more. So what used to give you the hit, whatever it may be, what used to get the adrenaline going, whatever it may be, after a while, the adrenaline doesn't go anymore. And so you need to find something else to give you the hit. Again, whatever the thing is, whatever the pleasure is. And it, it's, it's a progressive thing. It keeps asking for more and more and more and more. And ultimately, it's never satisfying because you get used to it. You see people who are, you know, hooked on drugs and they start with this and they have to do more and they have to do more and more and more and more because it no longer provides the satisfaction that it once did and the hole needs to be filled again and the satisfaction needs to happen again. And what does he say? It's like a chasing after the wind. It's like you're trying to reach for something that's always running away from you. I mean, just think about trying to chase the wind. What a foolish thing. But this is kind of what he says he did uh, when he was after all of this pleasure. What about materialism? Very prevalent here in North America. And he says, look, I undertook great projects. I built houses. I owned. I amassed things. I acquired things. I had all of this stuff. I mean, you can read in the Old Testament, people used to go and visit Solomon just to see his stuff. He had so much material and so much kind of glory around him in the, in the physical that people used to go just to see his stuff. Look, it's Solomon's car. 
Look, it's Solomon's house. Look at that house. Look at that car. Look at that palace. You know, this is how much stuff he had. But what does he say? It's meaningless. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. All this stuff. Why? Because what happens with stuff, once you, once you have your stuff, it never seems to be enough, right? We want, we want more. So when you have some, you got to have more. How much more? A little bit more? Well, but now it's better. There's a better version out of the stuff. So, you know, it used to be this kind of thing, but now they've introduced a new version. It's better. So now I have to have better. Uh, but now there's something, and it's different. So now I have to have the different, and it just never ends. It keeps going. It keeps going on and on and on. And so what do we do? We, we sometimes divert it away from these kind of, you know, we say, well, knowledge, pleasure, materialism. Okay, well, I, don't, I don't worship those things. Uh, but what do we do? We say, well, uh, my family, I live for my family. I live for my job. Uh, I live for, you know, what I do in life. That's the, that's the source of everything for me. That's who I'm living for. That's what it's all about for me. That's what gets me up in the morning. It's, you know, nice things like my family, my spouse, my relationships, my kids, my job, what I do in life. Uh, the, the problem with that is you have no guarantees of those things staying forever the way that they are. If those are the things that you put into your life and into your heart to satisfy you, wow, you're taking a huge, huge risk. You could lose all of those things in a, in a heartbeat. Uh, do you remember Job from the Old Testament who lost everything he had except his, his life and his wife all in one day? Do you remember that story? All his children, all his wealth, everything. And he ends up, he, you know, he's not dead yet, but he's near dead. He's got the problems there, and he's got a wife who tells him to curse God and die. So he loses it all in one day. Uh, I remember working, the first pastor I worked for, Don Mann, who's now a missionary in, in Africa. Uh, the, the, his story is just that. When he was a young adult, teenager, young adult, uh, both of his parents were killed immediately in a head-on car crash, died instantly when he was a young man. You have no guarantees in life. If you, if you worship those things, and they're good things, family, friends, relationships, job, nothing wrong with those things. But if those things are the ultimate source of your satisfaction in life, you are going to lose those things one day. Even if you do not lose them in this life, you will lose them in the one to come. So one day, death is going to come and separate you from all of those things. And you won't have them anymore. What will you have on the other side? This is what Jesus is driving at. You must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. If you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Nothing can satisfy the hole in the heart of man beyond a relationship with Jesus Christ. So what do we do? We numb the emptiness that we feel. So we get to a certain point, you know, with men, they call it a midlife crisis. With women, I don't know what they call it, some kind of crisis. Women are always in crisis, right, men? Okay, you're still awake. That's just, that's just a joke, okay? Don't, I'm just making a joke just to make sure you're awake. 
Well, what do we do? We find all these things to numb it. We realize maybe there's some truth in what this guy Solomon is saying. So we find a way to escape, a way to numb the pain. You know, some people, they can't, they can't even sit still and be quiet for five seconds. If they sit still and be quiet, it's like they start getting nervous. Got to get busy. Got to do something. Got to get my life going because this emptiness, this silence reminds me of not good things. So I got to get moving. We find things to stuff in there to numb the pain. And that's when some of these things that Carrie Newhoff talks about in his book start to take over. You know, pride, cynicism, compromise, disconnection, irrelevance. They all kind of swim around and we find something to numb the pain and we start doing things we shouldn't do. We start trying to medicate. Uh, some common ones are work, 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 work. You ever hear the term workaholic? That's because they're trying to stuff something in there to numb something else, to distract from something else. Food is a big one. Are you an emotional eater? You ever hear that term? Emotional eating is, wow, I mean, if you eat, if you eat to satisfy emotional stuff, man, oh, man. You know, I could show you some big, big stores with a whole lot of junk food that will really, really help you there. Any of you been to Plattsburgh? Super Walmart, do you know what's in there? The amount of food in there that can numb your pain? Wow, a lot, a lot of stuff. Great example, well, not great, it's probably the wrong word. Uh, this is Tony Clement, the, still an MP, I believe, uh, in Ontario. Do you know what happened with him this week? Wow, big, big catastrophe, huge example of what we've been learning for the last number of weeks. And Tony Clement, who's... I believe 57 years old, uh, has run into a big catastrophe. And just reading his, his statement that he made, his ap apology statement, this is a man who was caught uh, texting illicit images of himself, and I believe video images of himself, to a person who he thought was a consenting woman, ended up being an extortionist, uh, Tony Clement has uh, had a profile in the conservative caucus that had a lot of confidentiality necessities to it and so on. And uh, he lost all of that, except I think he's a backbencher now, uh, an MP, but he was asked to step out of caucus because of this scandal. There are women now who are coming forward talking about his interactions with them. Um, listen to what he says. Um, he says he made a number of poor decisions during a period of personal difficulty and weakness in his life. And uh, he continues and he says, pride and vanity got the better of me. And shame held me back from getting back to the path of good. And he issues a statement. It's a very... I think, sincere statement of apology for his actions. It's going to take him years and years and years to clean up the mess. Uh, his wife has not left him. I don't know if she will, but this is a man who found a way to medicate. Uh, a man with money, a man with prestige, a man with power, a man with, you know, the nice house and all of those things. And yet the behavior, we look and we say, how could someone do something so silly in that type of position? Well, he's medicating something. And here's, here's the, the whole crux of the matter. Um, we're constantly searching for something 
to satisfy us? Us, 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 the common denominator, me, 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 myself and I, me, myself and I. What's going to satisfy Solomon? I'll try wisdom. I'll try pleasure. I'll try knowledge. I'll try materialism. I'll try all these things. You know, if it doesn't work, I'll stuff something in there. It's, but the common denominator is what? Me, 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 us, us, us. Is it my kingdom or is it God's kingdom? And that's the central thing that Jesus is driving at in this conversation with Nicodemus. I've always been bothered uh, by a passage of scripture um, in the book of Ephesians. Um, it comes to mind, I want to, to read it for you here. I've always been bothered by this. I mean, listen to this passage, speaking of this, of this overall subject. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What? All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. What? How can he say that? Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying that you, you people in Ephesus, okay, before you were Christians, you lived in a kingdom. You followed the ways of this world, and you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Do you know who that is? You know who he's talking about? Do you know? Tell me, who's he talking about? Who's the kingdom of the air? The king of the, of, of the air that he's referring to. Who's the ruler of the kingdom of the air? The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who is that? It's the, it's the devil who he's talking about. It's Satan who he's talking about. So I look at this and I really, really have problems with this passage. Because he's saying that a person who is not a Christ follower... A person who is not in Christ, a person who is not born again, a person who has no relationship with God, a person who is not saved, you know what they are? They're a follower of the devil. And I looked at this, and I said, for years and years and years, this passage has bothered me. I said, well, Paul, that's so harsh. How can you say to a person who's not a church person that there's somehow some devil worshiper or some nonsense like that? How can you say that? I mean, the person may not even believe that the devil exists. They may not even believe that God exists. How can you say such things? So, so, so harsh from the pen of Paul. Um, on October 31st of this year, just a few days ago, the mystery was solved for me. And uh, I was listening to a podcast, an interview with the late Gretchen Passantino. You probably have never heard that word or that name. Gretchen Passantino was regarded as an expert uh, in, in the subject of the occult. Uh, Satanism and the occult wrote several books about you know, protecting children from the occult and so on. Expert in world religion, uh, really world-renowned, she and her husband. And I was listening to a podcast with her, an interview um, on Halloween, on October the 31st. And, of course, the subject was, you know, all of that stuff. And uh, she talked about, it opened my eyes, she said, you have to understand that modern Satanism, not ancient Satanism, not Satanism that's practiced in other countries, but in North America, contemporary modern Satanism is this, and she started to describe it. 
And she said, it's not people who run around and do seances and, you know, sacrifice animals and worship some devil. She said, most contemporary Satanists do not even believe in a personal devil. They do not even believe in God. They, they loathe Christianity. But most contemporary Satanists, their worldview is, it's all about me. It's all about my pleasure. It's all about my gratification. It's all about my satisfaction. It's all about me. And in Satanism, the, the worldview allows for the person to hurt others or trample on others or perhaps even manipulate others for guess who? Me, 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 me. And then I looked at Paul's words. I said, oh, I see. The selfish gratification, the constant search for satisfying me, 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 me is a close second to, wow, contemporary Satanism? Wow, really, really powerful stuff when you change the picture and you change the kingdom that's when you start to understand the big ball game that Jesus is talking about. Satisfaction is found this way. The cure for emptiness is this way. Get yourself off yourself. Stop living for your kingdom and start living for God's kingdom. And that's when you find that you will be free. When you surrender your life to God, you will find eternal life. Jesus talks about it this way uh, in, in uh, the gospel of, of Luke. Uh, I'll pull it up for you here somewhere. Somewhere, yes. So uh, after Peter confesses to, to Jesus and he says, uh, who do you think I am? And he says, the son of God. Uh, Jesus continues a dialogue, a conversation a little bit later, and he pre predicts his own death and resurrection. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the Thursday, third day raised to life. Wow. But then he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny who? Themselves. Must deny themselves and take up their what? Their cross. He just talked about being put to death. Doesn't mention a cross there, but he's hinting at it. Must take up their cross daily and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will what? Lose it, according to Jesus. And whoever loses their life for me will do what? Save it. What's he talking about? You're living for a different kingdom. No longer your kingdom, but God's kingdom. What good is it for someone? He continues to gain the whole world, Solomon, and yet lose or forfeit their very self. And then some scary words. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of, his, of the father and the holy angels. Wow, wow, wow. Strong, strong stuff. What's his overall point? If you want a cure to emptiness, you've got to change kingdoms. It's got to be no longer your kingdom, me, myself, and I, my own this, and find a way to be happy, find a way to satisfy my life. No, you give yourself away, and you start living for a different kingdom. And very, very few, even Christians, 
experience it to that level where they're fully surrendered to God, come what may. But the more you do that, the more your level of surrender, the more you lose your life, the more you will find that it's safe. It's, a, it's an amazing irony, but it is, it is, it is the cure to emptiness. Jesus said you must be not an option, a compulsion, an obligation. You must be born again if you want to enter life.